Welcome to a special bonus episode of Another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. And this is Dimity McDowell, my yes. co-authors. We, yes. Speaking to my co-author, and this <laughs> that's that's your point of reference for this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we are talking about the Run Like a Mother audiobook, the audio version of our first book. Which, Dimity, let's, you know, hop in the time machine and go back to fall of 2013 when we recorded it. That is so funny. I mean, I was thinking about that this morning. I mean, so in, in so we, we wrote it in 2009, right? So mm-hmm. that's yep. roughly a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, we got teepeed this morning. It's homecoming week here in Colorado. Oh, yeah. And um, I guess it's a tradition for senior girls to DP the junior girls. So that's the first time ever. So I'm feeling very, um, you know. Very homecoming, very high school-esque, and Amelia's got a job this weekend. Um, but I was like, oh my gosh. And 10 years ago, I was worried about like, you know, potty training, right? It all, it all comes full circle. <laughs> it all comes back to toilet paper. <laughs> oh my goodness. You better hope it doesn't rain because how, how miserable. Yeah, we don't get a lot of rain out here. Yeah, I think we're going to yeah. be okay over the weekend. But yes, yeah, I was, yeah. you know, I'm tempted because it's it, to drive into the driveway and have it everywhere. You know, and there's uh-huh. like that silly string and, you know, a couple oh. other things. And I'm like, not my job, not my job. It's her job. I'm not, I'm going to leave it. Oh boy. You need to take a photo and post it on our Instagram or something. I need to see this. Okay. It's not, it's not a ton. It's, it's actually a pretty light job overall. So it doesn't look super, but maybe, maybe I will. We'll see. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's go back to the fall of 2013, which I had to ask our then producer when it was exactly, because I couldn't even remember. But so, um, so you flew out from Denver mm-hmm. to here in Portland for the weekend because our then producer Jonah had assured us, had assured us that we could bang out the recording in two days. <laughs> yeah. That we kind of realized, wow, I, that's too ambitious. And I'm like, oh, wait, us trying to do something that is, you know, kind of ambitious. No, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, right. So, so we set up kind of a plan of attack, right? Um, mm-hmm. It was going to be the Dimity show for two days because I obviously don't live in Portland. And yeah. then um, we did a couple things. Um, you, you and I read some point twos, which are kind of like the commercial breaks um, mm-hmm. and other sidebars together to, um, you know, let my saliva uh, regenerate in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and as Dim said, those point twos, those are um, kind of like the commercial breaks between each of the 26 chapters in the book. So here is one of those point twos. Point two, if famous women were runners. How would the lives of famous females, either fictitious or real, be different if they'd laced up their sneaks and rubbed on the body glide? History just wouldn't be the same. If Eve had been a runner, she would have swapped fig leaves for a sports bra. If Cleopatra had taken up running, she would have quickly learned sweat and coal eyeliner don't mix. Instead, she would have used her natural beauty and her killer legs to woo lovers. If Juliet had been on her high school cross-country team, She never would have fallen so hopelessly in love with that Romeo fellow. Being a Harrier was a far more positive outlet for her youthful exuberance. Plus, her teammates would have never let her get so moony over a guy from another high school. If Betsy Ross had been a runner, the American flag might be red with a block of blue and a few stars smattered on it. No time for sewing when there are Minuteman mile repeats to run. If Jane Austen heroine Elizabeth Bennet had been a runner, she would have had the verdant grounds of Pemberley crisscross with running paths after finally marrying Mr. Darcy. Although if he really looked like Colin Firth, she might have never left the estate's master bedroom. If Sakagawea had been a runner, 
it would not have been called a Lewis and Clark expedition. The fearless Shoshone woman would have led the whole way to the Pacific with her infant son lashed to her back. If Louisa May Alcott had been the trail runner, her semi-autobiographical classic about Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy would have certainly been titled Little Runners, with a chapter about Joe racing next-door neighbor Lori while her sisters cheered her on. If Betty Crocker had run as much as she baked, goo would have been invented in the 1940s and the packets would have been filled with pure frosting. If Amelia Earhart had been a running devotee, she would have jammed her running shoes into the cockpit so she could have taken a victory lap on the other side of the Atlantic. If Emily Post had been a runner, she never would have worn earbuds in a race, fired off a snot rocket, the horror, or used a porta potty Or sweated, for that matter. If Virginia Woolf had run as well as she wrote, the endorphins would have pulled her out of her depression. She would have run by the river instead of walking into it. If Coco Chanel had done tempo runs down the Avenue des Champs-Élysées, running skirts would have become fashionable nearly a century ago. All right. And just in case you enjoyed that one, here's another one. Point two, Rutbusters by Dimity. My freshman year of college, I was rejected by my sorority of choice. I was so mortified, I was ready to catch the next plane home and never return. Instead, the morning after the axe fell... I went to the local elementary school, where I volunteered in the first grade class. Sitting among low-income kids who were struggling to sound out the word table sucked me out of my self-centered pity. I realized being branded by Greek letters wasn't that big of a deal. You can hit a similar woe-as-me rut in running. You plateau at a certain speed. Motivation is harder to find than matching socks in a laundry folding session. You're just over it. Here are a few of my favorite ways to get over myself. Relay. Oregon's Hood to Coast, New Hampshire's Reach the Beach, and the Ragnar series are runners' versions of raves. Teams are usually made up of 12 runners, with each athlete running three legs of three to eight miles each. Between segments, you'll laugh harder than you have in years, eat Cool Ranch Doritos, blast rowdy music, and get roughly 45 minutes of sleep in 24 hours. If that sounds like your version of hell, consider this. One of my most memorable runs ever was during the Hood to Coast at 2 a.m. with nothing but the sounds of the night and a full moon to guide my way. Mentor. Rediscover the sport through the spindly legs of a 10-year-old. Girls on the Run, a program in more than 150 cities, is a 12-week, 24-run commitment to share the love with an 8- to 12-year-old girl as you help her train for and run a 5K. You never know. You may be going stride for stride with the next Dina Castor. Slice oranges or pass out finisher medals, direct traffic, or refill water cups at a local race. Stale while training for a half marathon, I signed up to help with the food distribution at the Discover Trail Marathon in Colorado Springs. As I sliced oranges and bananas, I asked every runner who wasn't frowning how his or her race was. The answers I got, I PR'd to, I made it, but it was hard to, never again, reminded me you have to embrace the valleys to appreciate the peaks. Shine your light. On the sidelines of a marathon, I'm always in awe of visually impaired athletes who rise to the challenge. Not exactly a graceful athlete who can multitask. I haven't yet been brave enough to volunteer as a guide, but it's on my running bucket list. If you're up for the task, my hunch is your involvement would be more meaningful than any PR ever could be. Okay, Dim. So uh, what's your memory of the studio that we recorded it in? 
Um, I just remember it being kind of in the, in the back of a house. I mean, I've, my dream um, is to have a, an office space that is not in my house, but is, oh, is yeah. a yard commute away, right? Walk across <laughs> the yard and you're there. Walk across the yard and you're home. And so yes. that, that's what I remember is like, oh, this is a nice office space. I could, I could live with this. That, that was my take on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it was, so yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I assume they're called the same thing everywhere. They're called ADUs here in Portland, which means accessory dwelling unit. I've and I've never uh, heard that before. <laughs> okay, it's a very common term here. In well, Portland. And, you have, and you have a real estate husband too. So you're probably yeah. more in tune to those kind of uh, acronyms. <laughs> right. Right. So, so it was a standalone studio in the backyard of a house in Southeast Portland, and it was a soundproof room. And it, and it was quite large soundproof room. Uh, it was, you know, it, it was, was a nice room. Mm-hmm. It was, it was there. And so it was you, me, Jonah, our producer, and then this other producer who it was his studio, he's named Peter. So it was us plus these two young guys. And the, I don't, I, I don't think I'd ever been in a soundproof room before. And it just, it makes you feel so alone and so set off from the rest of the world that I started having a mini panic attack because suddenly this whole scenario, I think I'd been reading too much dystopian novels or something because suddenly I'm like, oh my gosh, there's been an atomic blast and it's just Dimity and me and these two guys and we have to repopulate the rest of the world. Peter and Jonah. And what are we going to do? Oh my gosh, do we have canned food? Yes. And then I was also very cognizant of the fact that I was going through early menopause. I'm like, no, I'm not the right person for this job. <laughs> <laughs> you were really thinking through the details, Sarah. I was, I oh was. So, so that's why I just I was reading the whole time. So you probably had like you had nothing but time to let your whole brain just, you know, uh just spins. go and go and go. Yeah, spinning it out. So I just remember laughing insanely because when I get nervous like that, when I get kind of panicky, I just start laughing uncontrollably. So I just remember not being able to hold it together and the three of you just looking at me like what's wrong? What's so funny? And I couldn't explain it. And, oh my, and how awkward would that be to be like implying like, oh yeah, I was just imagining that we had to recreate the world. Two yeah. of you guys, who, who, which, which tall girl do you want? Right. <laughs> spin exactly. the bottle, spin the bottle. <laughs> I just went down a very bad rabbit hole. So yes, 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 yes. So, um, so yeah, but so we, oh, there goes Augie. We didn't Augie. have Augie then. We didn't. You we might did hear banjo have... on this podcast. You might. Hear, we didn't have banjo then. I think. Uh, yeah. I don't even think we had Mason then. I think it was my Dharma days even. Yeah. So. Yeah. Long oh time ago. Goodness. Yes. So. Um. So yeah. So we focused on you doing your reading. So here is a chapter that you read. This is chapter twelve. Trail running. Chapter twelve. Trail running. Venturing into the wild by Dimity. If George W. was the decider, then I'm the unrememberer. Ask me to recount the plot of any book I've ever read, and I'm SOL, which is a little shameful for a writer to admit. What happened to that Russian chick, Anna Karenina, again? I've never folded lines from Caddyshack, Dodgeball, or some immensely quotable movie into a conversation, and I rarely get the reference when others do. I suck at recalling people's names, even minutes after being introduced, and I have pulled more U-turns in my life than the Dukes of Hazard. So it shouldn't come as a surprise when I tell you I can't remember houses I've run past hundreds of times or the turnaround point of a race I've done three times or how the 14th mile of my last 15 miler felt, which it should be noted was almost three years ago. So maybe I'm off the hook on that one. Yes, I must have selective memory loss as my sieve-like brain holds on to trail runs for years, almost decades. 
close my eyes and I can see the dust kicked up by feet stomping on the grayish silt that lines the Central Park Reservoir, the short, steep hills of the Dale Ball Trails in Santa Fe that slowed my pace long after I'd topped them, the brutal two-mile climb that kicks off the Aspen Golden Leaf Half Marathon, a trail race, and noodled my legs for the remaining 11.1 miles, the snake-like trails dotted with bunnies that wind around the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. I can actually picture distinct portions of those runs, which is almost spooky considering I can't recollect the name of any character in Anna Karenina, except, of course, old Anna herself. Thinking about it, though, I came to this realization. I use road running and movies and books to calgon me away from my daily life. I put my brain on cruise control and run without thinking about running, but trade smooth pavement for uneven trails, and suddenly I'm not tuning out the world but actually tuning it in. As I ricochet off rocks, hop over roots, and keep track of my route, my brain actively controls the joystick attached to my feet and fires the jump and turbo buttons endlessly. Like road running, I forget about my worry du jour on the dirt. The trails command my attention. But unlike when I'm plodding along on ho-hum streets, I rarely forget the run. Back up. You're thinking, Central Park Reservoir is a trail? Really? Okay, my definition is a bit generous there, but in my mind, any surface not smoothed out by a yellow machine qualifies as off-road. The perimeter of a golf course works, as do a gravel road, and in a pinch, a trodden-down strip of grass next to a sidewalk. In an ideal world, we would all live near narrow, single-track paths that cross bucolic streams and are shaded by aspens. But as adult acne, liverwurst, and other unsavory items attest, the world is far from ideal. Even I, living in a mountainous state overflowing with such trails, can't get to them in the limited window I usually have to run. So I crisscross grassy parks and lope next to train tracks, heeding the oft-repeated mantra in our house. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. When I'm not on the pavement, something memorable happens. Yet, as much as I love trails, I don't run on them regularly. In fact, when I'm training for a specific road race, I forgo them completely. Part of it is practical. Best to train on the surface you're going to race on so your joints don't get jolted. But part is simply me being way too nerdy. When I've got a detailed training schedule, I can't stand not following it. I want to bullseye my mileage and lickety nine-minute mile pace. Trails typically slow your pace by at least a minute or two and can also be tricky footing-wise for tempo or interval runs. In other words, they don't allow my A-plus analness to shine through. When I cross off my last prescribed workout and cross the finish line on asphalt, though, I'm once again on my trail sabbatical. Getting back on the dirt, I imagine, must be how my kids feel when they run around naked after a bath. Totally pure, loving the air on their skin, not worried about what other people think. On the trail, I lose all expectations. I leave the garment at home. I usually leave the music at home, too. I run for time, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever, but I don't even set my stopwatch. I just go off the chronological time, and even then I don't hit the mark because I often have no idea how long a certain loop takes or whether I could have saved time by going left at that last fork. I happily walk when the uphills get too steep. I don't force it when the gravity gifts me on the downhills. The places on my body that scream after a road run barely whisper after a trail run. And for good reason. Loamy trails are downright pillowy when compared to unforgiving concrete. Another trail bonus. 
useful stabilizing ligaments in ankles and knees, which don't get engaged on the pavement, full-on fire on the trail, building a more bomb-proof body. Perhaps most importantly, I live exactly in the moment, not wishing the run away, as I'm prone to do. Prime example, on a recent jaunt in the Garden of the Gods, I, a chronic data checker, didn't even look at my watch for 45 minutes into the run. No way, I thought to myself when I finally peeked at it. Yes, friggin' way! My trail runs don't always lead to utopia, though. After a three-month, real, injury-induced sabbatical from running, I headed out on a six-mile hike with the dogs in early January on a Sunday morning, eager to start the new year right. I'd only planned to hike, but after I huffed up the 800 vertical foot climb at the start, the rest was a gentle downhill. Parts of the trail, hidden from the sun, were slicker than Bill Clinton circa 1998, but long stretches were dirt-covered, open, and just ripe for the running. I couldn't resist. Being uncharacteristically wise, I jogged easily on the clean trails and stopped and tiptoed across the icy parts. The loop ended in a canyon, which was a veritable ice rink. Stupidly, I kept running. I didn't want my Rocky Mountain high to end. I passed one woman headed up the canyon who warned, Be careful, it's really icy. She's right, I thought, and slowed to a walk. Not a minute later, I was down. Hard. With roughly 90% of the impact of my 175-pound body landing directly on my left wrist. It snapped like a dry twig. Hello, another three-month sabbatical. After I gingerly stood up, sobbing, the first thing I thought to myself was, thank God it's just my wrist, as I vaguely remembered a story I had read recently in Runner's World. Accomplished adventure racer Danelle Ballingy, who went out for an eight-mile run near her home in Moab, Utah, slid 60 feet down a slick rock canyon, fractured her pelvis in four places, and survived in mid-December for three days and two nights. Her dog, a three-year-old named Taz, led rescuers to her. FYI, I googled all that info. There was no way my SpongeBob mind retained that. I doubt my harebrained dogs could have done the same, but I was fortunate to be on a fairly populated trail dotted with people and their fresh New Year's resolutions. Still, I was a bit of a hero. I got back to my standard transmission truck, loaded up both dogs, and drove home with my knee and right hand still intact. Yeah, so the potential for accidents is a big knock against trail running. Unlike road running, when tiny muscle imbalances nibble on you until you're finally injured, you get chomped on the trail. Skin knees, twisted ankles, and broken bones, and you could be miles from your car. Although animal encounters are rare, the annual story of the mountain lion attacking a runner in California always freaks me out. But my biggest fear is getting lost. I haven't yet, knock on wood, but I'm sure that day will come. That said, I'm also fairly confident it'll be a fiasco that lasts an hour or so, nothing longer. If you've never tried trail running, don't let those last few paragraphs discourage you. If my fairy run mother appeared one day and told me I had to choose to run exclusively on either trails or roads for the rest of my life, the decision would be a no-brainer. Dirt. Natch. In fact, as I write this, I've been on a trail extravaganza for about three months, and I don't foresee an end date or a road race anytime soon. Both my body and mind are thriving. Road running is mostly vanilla, which is America's favorite flavor for a reason. It's reliable and safe and can be easily spruced up with sprinkles and hot fudge, or in this case, intervals or strides. But there are so many more flavors out there. You owe it to yourself to try Rocky Road, with its chunks and surprises packed inside at least once. It's a taste you won't forget. 
practical motherly advice. Breadcrumbs are for fairy tales. I have no internal navigation. My compass skills are non-existent, and I couldn't find the North Star if it was the only one in the sky. In short, I'm plum pickings for a wilderness rescue. I get enough drama for my six-year-old teenager, so here are the don't-get-lost rules I follow. I prefer familiar, well-marked trails that have signs with arrows and mileage. Another option is running with a directionally gifted friend or two. If I'm by myself on a new trail, a situation into which I rarely put myself, I do an out and back, going as straight as possible. If there are forks, I'll only go in one direction, like take every left, and only allow myself to take three turns or so before I head back. So when I turn around, I know I take three rights. Right? Right. On solo runs of any length, I always carry a water bottle and at least one energy gel. Balan G had both of those things, plus a shower cap and two ibuprofen. I tell Grant where I'm going and when I expect to be back. Note, this isn't always foolproof. I tried calling him twice from a helpful stranger's cell phone after my wrist break, and even though he was home, he didn't pick up either time. I didn't recognize the number he explained sheepishly in the ER. On an unfamiliar trail that's a loop, I go with somebody at least twice before I attempt it on my own. The first time they lead, the second time I lead, and I don't let them direct me unless I ask for help. I'm not afraid to look dumb. Coming down from a hike up a portion of Pike's Peak, read, there's only really one direction to go. I noticed a trail that I hadn't seen before shoot off the major one. Is this the main trail down? I asked a runner zipping past me. Yep, you've got about two miles left, he said. That knowledge made the rest of my run much more enjoyable. And when in doubt, I head back. Take it from a mother. What's your favorite trail? The ones in Sundance, Utah. They were my first experience with trail running, and it was fabulous. Tina. Mantra that fires her up? Boston, Boston, Boston. None. Trail running requires focus and paying attention, so I haven't tried it yet. Karen. Buys new shoes when the old ones start to smell. The Imogene Pass, a 17-mile run from Ure to Telluride, Colorado. Finishing the race made me feel powerful and deeply fulfilled. It's breathtakingly beautiful and so satisfying to be enjoying that view, thanks to my own physical and mental strength. Leslie quit smoking and started running because she had her eye on a serious cyclist, now her husband. In Kauai, along Poipu Beach, watching whales. But I can find great trails anywhere. I just enjoyed the Lebanon Valley Rail Trail in Pennsylvania. Shaded, flat, and at sea level. Amy usually runs at 6,035 feet above sea level in Colorado Springs. Phone line trail in Sabino Canyon in Tucson. It's rugged, steep, and narrow, and the scenery is phenomenal. The Sonoran Desert is so alive, as you run you hear birds chirping and cicadas buzzing, and you see lizards basking in the sun and jackrabbits scurrying about. Due to the difficulty of the trail, it's not heavily traveled. Priceless. Jessica. Top three reasons for running? Endorphins. It feels like freedom, and it's truly empowering. Point two. This is my brain on a run. By Dimity. What I think about on a typical road run. 5%. Counting the weeks since Grant and I had sex. 5%. Imagining how I would feel if I found out I was pregnant again. 5%. Contemplating whether I'd want another girl or another boy. 2%. There's no chance. It's been three weeks since we got busy. 3%. 
wondering why some super hairy, generous gutted men think they look good shirtless. 35%. Calculating how much time I have left. 10%. Convincing myself I do really want to hear Beautiful Day by you 2 for the bazillionth time. 5%. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. 10%. Promising myself for the 50th time I'll make better playlists and delete the tired songs today. 3%. Planning the beautiful day ahead. 2%. Remembering a very random date with Maurice, who drove a blue BMW just like that one. 6%. Remembering the thank you notes, already weeks overdue. 8%. Visualizing myself with a cold glass of wine, heat on the coffee table, remote in hand at 8 tonight, telling myself the notes can wait. 0.3%. Counting my steps to check my turnover so my stride stays quick and efficient. 0.7%. Thinking about my form so I can prevent more injuries. What I think about on a typical trail run. 9%. Worrying about a rattlesnake coming out of nowhere and striking my ankle. 17%. Convincing myself I'm not lost. 5%. Wondering if I somehow got stranded, who would be the first to notice I was gone. 5%. Wondering who would find me. The ideal? A McDreamy EMT. 5%. Wondering how long rescue would take to arrive. Hours or days. 17%. Marveling at how much easier trail running feels on my knees and back than road running does. 4%. Calculating how much time I have left. 30%. Concentrating on where I need to land each foot so I don't twist an ankle. 6%. Visualizing myself with a cold glass of white wine, feet on the coffee table, Remote in hand at 7.30 tonight. Thank you notes don't even register. 2%, nothing. So, Dim, you read for basically hours on end. It's I think it was mostly Sunday that I read for hours and hours um, to get it, to knock it out. I think, you know, we kind of, calc I mean, maybe we started that Saturday afternoon, but then I do remember Sunday being kind of a marathon-esque day for me. Yeah. Um, Put but I got to say, it was, it was really fun. I mean, because even so we recorded it three years after or like three and a half years after it came out um, mm -hmm. after Train Like a Mother had already been released, the second book. And um, and so to go back and read some of the parts, you know, and because I think what happens is you work so hard on it, you know, you 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 proof every you, you read everything, you edit it, you edit it, you edit, you edit, and then you then it's sent off then you proof you proof you proof <laughs> you know and you're like by the time the thing finally has a cover on it you're just like I don't ever want to see another word in that book again because it's yeah. just you know it's just like you know you could recite it in your sleep but mm -hmm. you know three years later it feels kind of fun to go back and I mean the one that we're going to read next the false flats which is about the daughter that I was just talking about Amelia I mean I am so glad to have this um this mark of her childhood um, because I mean, I almost feel like I could read it, um, you know, at her bridal dinner or something like that, you know, because she hasn't changed. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, they're, they're still, you know, it's all about um, overcoming an, an encounter. You don't think that you can overcome. And she was a hedgehog in a, very um, funny little dance performance. It was probably like five seconds long. She was on stage. Um, but it was also about false flats where, you know, you're on this hill and I still, I mean, I still notice them all the time when I'm driving them. And if I happen mm -hmm. to be out running, you know, a false flat is just where you barely think you're like, how can I be going so slow? And you realize like, oh my gosh, I'm climbing. 
Like I'm mm-hmm. climbing just a little bit, but I'm climbing and I'm climbing and I'm climbing. And uh, anyway, I really, yeah, I love I, this essay. I love, I love this too. When I was going back and choosing what we would excerpt in this podcast and it came upon false thoughts, I'm like, oh, I love that. I love that. Of course, we're going to include that. Yeah. So. I have such a vivid memory too of writing it. I mean, with going down memory lane, I mean, we were living in Colorado Springs and um, I mean, I remember because we were writing two or three times a week each for the runner's world blog. Right. So this mm-hmm, is, this, mm-hmm. we took that off of that. We were the marathon moms on runner's world. And I remember being like, Oh, you know, and it was after dinner, you know, and I'm like, oh, I gotta go write a blog post, <laughs> like, Ugh, you know, and a uh, very, you know, anti blog post. But then I just went, you know, it's, it's like, you know, that one in a thousand time when like you sit down and you're like, Oh yeah, like this is all coming together. And I just, I, yeah. you know, it's like a really good race. Right. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Well, with with um, no further preamble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Are you expecting like the Gettysburg Address or something like that? Point two: False Flats by Dimity. When you look at a false flat straight on, it doesn't even look like a hill. Then you start running on it, and your calves tighten, and your hamstrings complain, and suddenly you're huffing more than usual. They're insidious little buggers that can kill your will to continue. They often have no real peak, and consequently, they carry little sense of accomplishment. They can go on for miles and miles, or in the case of motherhood, years. As much as I love my children, every day with the rugrats is a false flat. I start the morning, certain we're cruising on flat ground, then Ben rubs sunscreen in his eyes. Amelia can't find her other sandal. We have no bread for lunch, and Amelia chomps into Ben's back because he won't share his toy vacuum cleaner. By 8 a.m. most days, my proverbial calves are already seizing up. Then there are the times I'm certain I'm on a false flat and I have no idea how to end it. When Amelia was almost five years old and primed for the first performance of her young life, a hedgehog in a dance production of Alice in Wonderland, we set off to get pictures taken with her co-hedgies. We walked into the crowded building where all the performers were milling about in their costumes and she suddenly jammed 95% of her hand fingers and all, into her mouth. I'd seen that eat-my-fist move plenty of times before, and I know what it's code for. I'm scared and shy, and I'm not going to cooperate. So I took her to a quiet corner, dressed in her brown finery, and tried to coax her out of her hole. She wouldn't come. I had a couple of her friends convince her to join the group. The hand stayed in her mouth. I asked her dance teacher to talk to her. Still nothing. I offered ice cream after the picture, and when that didn't work, I picked her up and carried her into the studio, screaming. Walking by parents whose kids were predictably cooperating, I felt judged, stupid, and unsure of my mothering skills. Embarrassed by her behavior, and more importantly, by mine. Really? I'm forcing my four-year-old to take a picture on an ugly studio backdrop that I probably won't even buy? I finally relented, and we went home pictureless. Mentally, I generously gave her 50-50 odds she'd make it onto stage come performance night. I thought Amelia had made serious headway into her shyness, that it had leveled out. She went back with a dental assistant to get her teeth cleaned alone. I waited in the office. She no longer sat out swimming lessons. She even occasionally tossed a high to a stranger as she passed her on the bike path. And this situation was pretty familiar. It was her normal dance studio, teacher, and class. We've been talking hedgehogs for months. But that day, she reminded me, when she encounters unfamiliar territory, the road ahead continues to be anything but flat. 
And the hardest thing for me as a mother is that I can't climb that ground for her. Ice cream bribes, persuasive friends, or obnoxious moves from me won't convince her to continue on a path that's just slightly harder than she thinks that she can handle. She has to convince herself she can handle it. Here's the thing about false flats, though. Once in a while, you turn around and see that the road behind you does, in fact, go downhill. You've actually already made it really far. So far, in this case, she made it through the whole dance in front of an audience, hands out of her mouth. As she leapt and tiptoed and rolled, she continued her climb. All right. Well, another thing we did to add variety to the uh, audiobook, as well as to cut down on you having a very dry mouth and having to read for 48 hours straight, was to bring in other voices, literally. And we uh, recruited four other mother runners to come in and read the Take It From a Mother uh, advice anecdote sections that are sprinkled throughout the book. So, Dim, you were the genius behind pulling all of those together in written form. So kind of take us back and uh, tell us where you got this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just thought, you know, again, um, it was funny because we were just at our Cape Cod retreat. And at the beginning, we talked about how when we launched this, it was going to be about community and not necessarily about our own running performances. And um, and so, you know, having come from a magazine background, like sidebars are always big. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, unless the unless you're writing for the New Yorker, there's always going to be a sidebar. Right. (laughs) You know, to kind of like either draw the reader in or add something extra to the story. And, um, and so, uh, so I was like, how are we going to do sidebars, you know? And so, I mean, I, it's so funny because it's changed so much, but I mean, the first, I remember creating a survey, right? A word document and doing the email chain, right? Like sending it to the, I don't know, 30 women I knew that ran at that point, you know, Mm -hmm, and then having mm -hmm. them forward, forward, forward. And we got, I mean, I can't remember the numbers now, but I mean, I feel like it was, maybe close to 300. And then, and then it grew every year. We did it also in train like a mother and tales from another mother runner. And, um, it's funny because, you know, like when I was a journalist, um, you know, you, there's like, it's almost like your tax returns. Like how long do you save your notes? Right. Like how long can someone come back and like bite you in the fact checking bomb? Right. And, um, and so I, was, you know, I, I've been a little, I, I finally have gotten rid of most of that stuff, but oh, I don't want to, Oh my goodness. The, the fact, the fact checking for, 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 run, oh, the for writing, but okay, I haven't oh, gotten yeah. rid, I cannot bring myself to get rid of the surveys because they are so much fun and they bring so oh. much character and personality and different voices and different experiences. And I mean, the best part, re- go ahead, yeah. Sarah. I just remember you printed all of them out because also you think about how the technology has changed because if we did this now, we'd probably send it out as, you know, a Google doc or something like that. Yeah. And that, and that, so, but no, these were word docs, you know, that people, you know, entered their answers and then put, you know, type them in and then you printed all of them out and you carried them around like your little personal Bible. Oh, I love them. I loved them. I mean, I just love it because you find, I mean, you go through them and everyone, of course, you know, has something to say, but they, everyone had a nugget, right? Like a nugget mm-hmm. that just makes you laugh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or makes you think or makes you contemplate, whatever. But, um, and then, and the cool thing is, is I, I don't think I did it for the first one, but definitely for the second two, we had to source out the reading of them. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, I got to give them to some of my best running friends, like my friend Katie, who have run, you know, Pace and Ultras and Bethany, who um, did the Boston Marathon, ran the Boston Marathon for us to Chubani back in the day. And, you know, so it was just fun to also connect with them and give them what I knew to be a really fun task. You know, it's always mm-hmm, fun to mm-hmm. kind of share that. So everything about it was, was great. And, uh, 
And, and, and then, you know, people like still like, I was in your book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> I know. And then, but then also, didn't you then go up to your mom's house, which was out in the, up in the mountains and you pulled together those sections? Like you kind of wanted to seclude, since you yeah, don't have yeah. an ADU, you had to go somewhere. I didn't. I didn't yeah. So I got to the first time um, I went, I think for the first two books, because those were kind of back to back. My sister has a, had a condo in Winter Park. So mm-hmm. I went up there and pretended like I lived in the mountains. That was mm-hmm. that was another like like a very vivid, delicious time. Like got up, did my favorite trail run ever. Um, mm-hmm. Went to the store, got like provisions for the day, like a huge coffee and you know peanut M and M's and like a frozen <laughs> pizza and like you know just what a honey you know, crisp apple, <laughs> a honey crisp apple exactly. And then um and then just went and, and rode all day, which I mean you know especially because our kids were little at that time. I mean it was just such a it was just, it was just lovely. I mean, I, there's no other way to describe it other than like, that's my nirvana, right? Like uh-huh. being able, I mean, I don't want to live my life like that all the time, but to, especially when you are like coming at being come at again and again and again with kids and life and work and, you know, everything you're like, Oh, I have a day where yes, I have to work, but I have, I get to do this really fun thing that I love. And it's, it's mm-hmm. great. So I did that the first time. And then the, the third time for tales from another mother runner, um, I went to my mom's house because at that point there was no more condo. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. my mom lived in the mountains then. So that was an even better <laughs> pretend house <laughs> for me to live in. All right. So here is take it from a mother. What's your mantra in chapter three? Take it from a mother. What's your mantra? I am a strong, healthy mother of three. Amanda, dream running date. You stumped me. I really just like to run alone. It's your head, not your body, that's hurting, so move it. Christine hopes to run another sub-four marathon after her second kid is born. The faster you run, the faster you're done. Dana runs when her daughter is at ballet or kids are at tennis lessons. Junko, you are an Ironman. Junko, disclaimer, I run marathons and have never finished an Ironman, but for whatever reason, it gets me going. Kill the hill. Kathy. Saying originated while running up four-block-long Hate Street Hill in San Francisco Marathon. What are you saving it for? Kelly ran her first half-marathon with her mother-in-law only six months after she started running. Don't think. Just go. Cynthia. Explanation. I have found even the cleverest motivation speech composed the night before won't have a chance against the right brain's desire for more sleep at 4.30 a.m. Sharp which stands for Stay Here and Run, Princess. Kristen. Explanation? We have a sharp television mounted in front of our treadmill, and one day, when I was having a hard time motivating, I thought about what those letters stood for. I am a badass tri-chick. Raquel. Avoids trails because I trip over air. Run with your heart. Reba. Other motto? Just keep running. Adapted from Dory in Finding Nemo. Suck it up. Diana. Doesn't run with her kids because it would defeat the stress-reducing effect of a run. Leave it on the pavement. Melanie loves running by lakes, rivers, and oceans. You are a warrior. Kim started running at age 11. I had to wear a scoliosis brace, and my doctor let me take it off for an extra hour daily if I was running. Okay, so I definitely remember um, exceeding the speed limit when I was driving you to the airport. (laughs) Um, got you back there barely on time. And then, then I had to go back two more times to the, um, you know, bomb shelter. I mean, 
Sarah was like, and I'm wearing my chassis belt. Don't you even guys try anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wearing a sign that says clothes for business. Um, and, uh, so I had to go back two more times and, you know, there's no need to have Jonah there. And so it was just Peter. So I didn't, I, you know, so I spent two days down in the bomb shelter with Peter, but, <laughs> but, but then, um, but then reading my sections, which sometimes have a little bit racier part to them, um, racier in terms of um, a little PG-13, um, I made me realize how the brain works when you read out loud, that your brain actually skips a few words ahead. And so I would be reading something that seemed very bland, but then I'd be, then the next, you know, five words ahead or six words ahead was funny or a little scandalous. So I would start laughing during all these parts that didn't <laughs> seem very funny. And I, I mean, Peter must to this day just think I'm a total moron, but so. No, I doubt um, it. Did you leave the laughing in? I hope so. No, that was the oh. other thing about doing the, the audiobook that from, you know, the podcast, very much our podcast is about us laughing, us having side stories, you know, interrupting sure. each other to add little fun interjections, whatever. It's very organic and like a tossed salad. But this had to be, you know, the book as it was written. That was the other thing that there were times that I was like, oh, that's not true anymore. Can we change that? I know, no. I know. Or gosh, I want to edit this sentence as I write it because I realize <laughs> yeah. I have too many adjectives or something. Yeah, yeah. Right, Use right, the word right. lovely seven times in one paragraph. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so no, couldn't leave any of the laughs in. So had to like regain my composure. He would stop and then I'd feel badly because then I was wasting time and oh, it was just this vicious circle. Oh, so, that's so funny. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like in the horizontal sweats sessions part two. Oh my goodness. I Good was just, two. yeah, 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 yeah. That oh, just funny. laugh, laugh, laughing. So, and then the one that really got to me and then I just, I mean, I think I at one point had to just like stand up, walk out, like just Shake pull myself off. together and <laughs> get back in. Um, so is chapter 25, which is entitled potty talk, peeing, pooping, passing gas and periods. And so uh, here to get through, huh? Yep, yep, yep. That's so here so it is in its edited glory. Chapter 25, Potty Talk, Peeing, Pooping, Passing Gas, and Periods, by Sarah. My first ultrasound. I couldn't wait. The high-tech look inside my belly, then 14 weeks into the 40-week journey, would make my pregnancy seem real. Until then, I wasn't convinced I actually had a fetus growing. It could have as easily been gas and bloating making my pants insanely uncomfortable by the end of the workday. Obeying doctor's orders, I gulped down copious amounts of water before heading over to the hospital for the procedure. Sitting in the waiting room, I had images of Huck Finn and Jim floating through my mind. I was a raft and my bladder was the damned up Mississippi. At last my name was called and Jack and I followed the ultrasound technician back to the examination room. I shuffled along, the pressure of my bladder nearly causing paralysis. I was in agony, yet I felt ridiculously proud I'd showed up with a very full bladder, per instructions. Oh, Miss Overachiever. The tech said my bladder was too full, obstructing her view of our little peanut. As I crept off the table to the restroom to release the floodgates, she said she'd never seen a woman with such an enormous bladder. As much as I love praise, this wasn't the type of compliment I was aiming for. When I came out of the bathroom three minutes later, there was a gaggle of nurses standing around to get a look at me. Turns out the tech couldn't resist telling them about me. I felt I should be in the freak show. Step right up, folks. Here's Calliope, a real live mermaid. Ferdinand, a 400-pound man who can swallow swords. And Sarah, the woman with the gigantic bladder. Why am I oversharing like this? As proof I have a large storage capacity for urine. 
Yet still, I've had to relieve myself mid-run many a time. The fact that I live in a major metropolitan area doesn't prevent me from copying a squat along the way. My most recent release was between a dumpster and some bushes over near the twins' preschool during daylight hours. Not exactly proud of it, but I don't really have a problem with it either. I'm not alone. Diana, a former co-worker, admitted to ducking behind parked cars about every mile in San Francisco's houses stacked on top of each other, Noe Valley, while running during her three pregnancies. Christine, a mom of two, is another fan of running for cover behind vehicles. It's a last but quick resort, she told me. Her car cover of choice? Little cars like a Mini Cooper, because you can hide behind one and watch out of its windows for passers-by at the same time. Runners in more bucolic areas also answer the call of nature during a run. Joe, another mom of two, was running in upstate New York while visiting relatives and she had to go. She thought she was in the woods, but it turned out to be someone's side yard. Not a recommended way of scoring points with in-laws. Obviously, I'm not shocked by any of these anecdotes, but I get the sense some women runners would be. Dimity and I have heard from a bunch of marathon moms who've said they've never had to answer the call of nature while out on the road. Never? Is your bladder a bigger freak than mine? I rarely have to pee, testified Holly, a mom of two, echoing countless similar comments. Now this I find remarkable, probably because I'm borderline obsessed with staying well hydrated. I can't stand to be thirsty, or even anticipate being thirsty. The hardest thing I had to endure with the C-section delivery of our twins was the overwhelming thirst I experienced afterward. I tried to slip a nurse a 20 to smuggle me in a drink. My Oliver Twist-worthy pleas eventually wore down one sympathetic nurse, and she brought me a glass of watered-down grape juice with crushed ice. It was as heavenly as sipping a Mai Tai on a Tahitian beach with a swimsuit-clad Daniel Craig. But wait, where was I? Right, peeing by the side of the road. If you stay properly hydrated and go for runs longer than two hours, eventually you're going to have to make a pit stop. Certainly ducking into a gas station or McDonald's is an option, but in residential areas, it can be tough to find a bathroom that doesn't have bark for its decor or grass on its floor. So you have to suck it up. Don't let a little thing like modesty get in the way. I have a philosophy about dropping trow in public. Folks are more embarrassed to see my butt than I am to have them see it. I'm not saying I think my ass rivals Jessica Beale's booty, but just that I feel most people are so shocked when they spy a bare bottom they don't critique it for firmness or shape. Which brings me to one of the many reasons why I love running skirts with spankies modest attach briefs, rather than a compression short-style liner underneath. Unlike their longer cousins, which need to be pulled down for clearance, spankies can be quickly pulled aside, allowing modesty during elimination. Case in point, I recently peed in downtown Portland in some bushes behind a U-Haul at the annual Doggy Dash. Hey, if hundreds of dogs were relieving themselves in the vicinity, why couldn't I? My Hood to Coast teammate Alexa would approve. Due in part to poor bladder control caused by the birth of her twin sons, she admits to being known as piss pants by her fellow runners. She told me, I have been able to perfect my squatting technique so that I can pee in four seconds flat. I hardly lose any time at all. Jokes aside, Alexa's situation brings up a serious matter familiar to many runners, especially pregnant ones and moms who have destroyed their pelvic lore muscles, urinary incontinence. The leaking some moms experience on their first few runs postpartum doesn't always go away, like with Jill, a mother of three. Two years after the birth of her second child, she was still leaking urine on her runs. Her innovative solution, I just wear a pad when I run and keep going. A pee pad sounds to me like a stopgap measure, not a long-term solution. If you have incontinence while running, or heck, when you laugh, sneeze, or jump rope in kickboxing class, tell your OBGYN. If the situation is beyond the scope of regular kegels, 
She may refer you to a physical therapist, as mine did after the vaginal delivery of my older daughter. I didn't have incontinence, but after I pushed for nearly six hours, yes, as long as the average school day, my doctor worried I might develop a control problem. To head off any problems down the road, or on the road, I paid a call to a female physical therapist. Just in case you're lucky enough to be in this focus group, here's some info to prepare you for another of those oh-so-pleasant encounters under the drape sheet. Most physical therapists use biofeedback, positioning an internal probe, think plastic and metal tampon, or electrodes on the perineum, which are attached to a computer so you can see how hard you're working. You do variations of coochie tightening exercises, like as many quick flutters as possible in 90 seconds, or extended clenches, going for a PR in how long you can squeeze. Depending on the severity of the problem, expect to visit the physical therapist about four to eight times with treatment spread out over several months. I snap back after about 10 weeks, but I'm still trotting around with my oversized bladder. Okay, enough talk about number one. Let's progress to the other scintillating three Ps, passing gas, pooping, and periods. Passing gas. Of course, I never, ever pass gas when I exercise, but I hear a lot of runners do. All right, I admit, maybe once or twice I've let out a squeaker while I'm in my sneakers. It's one thing to let it rip when you're by yourself, but what about when you're racing or running with somebody else? Turns out both Dimity and I have been kidding ourselves with the same bogus rationale, that we're running away from the smell and no one will notice it. Which means you'd never smell a fart on a race course, which as my singed nose hairs can attest, is definitely not the case. We also know we're not alone because while snooping around the internet, we discovered bloggers have written entire posts about letting one rip while running. One blogger suggested faking an injury or needing to retire shoes if you need to blow a beefy while in a group. That way you can float a fart off to the side of the road, then catch up with your running buddies. One thing we know from personal experience, if you need to let one rip, don't try to hold it. That can lead to a noisier, bigger eruption of gas a few blocks later. Some women swear they can let a fart slowly sneak out, but that's up there with running a five-minute mile. We just don't have that kind of talent. After weighing the options, my new policy is to fire off one and then own up to it. Like I tell our kids to do when they, um, step on a duck, just say, excuse me. We all know we fart, so let's just acknowledge it, ask for forgiveness, and keep on running away from it. Pooping. As runners, we all know taking a dump ranks right up there with double-knotting your shoes on the list of things to do before a run. Many runners swear by drinking coffee or hot water before a run to get things moving. Others do jumping jacks or a short neighborhood lap. The up and down motion gets things moving and they are still in the vicinity of their bathroom. Then they start their real run. Fortunately, I find my body just knows when I'm going to hit the road. On the mornings I run, I wake up and my colon is ready to rumble. But sure, there have been runs when things get shaken loose and I've had to pick up the pace to get home pronto. I laughed in solidarity over a tale from Cheryl, the mother of one daughter who once had to go number two in the bushes outside my dad's house because I couldn't get the door open in time, she says. I was completely embarrassed but had no choice but to do it. I was just hoping no one would come up the drive while I was doing my business. Similarly, Kat, a mother of two in Colorado Springs, was running with her husband's boss's wife. Got that? And desperately had to go number two. I just ran into a ditch, she remembers. It was embarrassing, but she's been a runner for 35 years, so she's done it all. I can relate to their dilemma. Just as my colon knows when I'm going running, it also knows when I'm within 100 feet of the toilet after I finish my run. I can be fine up until steps from the porcelain, then it's a mad dash to get the capris down in time. The stress of a race plays havoc with our innards. 
You can think you've emptied the chute, yet five minutes later you feel the urge to purge again. We don't have a solution for this, although Mother of Five Mary once had a coach tell her to stay away from the green in the days leading up to the race. Seems the coach thought the roughage of lettuce, kale, spinach, and the like was too much for the system to handle. I'm not sure a registered dietitian would approve, but I figured it's worth sharing because it has usually worked for Mary, a veteran of too many 5Ks and 10Ks to count, none of which, it seems, required an extended pit stop. If you can't accept having to wait in the porta potty line yet another time, follow the lead of Christine. This running coach and mother of two overshared with us, which we always love. So now we are passing her story along to you. Okay, I know this may be gross, but since we are all moms here, I love my son's potty seat that he learned to go on. It all happened innocently. I kept his portable little potty in the back of my car in case he had an emergency. I arrived late to a race and had no clue where the restrooms were. With no time to spare, I decided to use the toddler toilet in the back. I set it on the floor of the back seat and did my thing. Luckily, I have tinted windows. It was so easy and it got me thinking. So when I did a marathon about an hour's drive from my house, I made sure to have the potty with me. I know this may be entirely too much information, but here goes. I took some plastic grocery bags to line the little potty so I could discard the you-know-what. Having that potty in my car saved me a ton of time standing in the cold, waiting for a nasty porta potty I'm fairly certain I couldn't squeeze my non-beal buns between the railings of a toddler potty, so I'm stuck in during the lines to, and stench of, the grown-up portable potties at races. But I totally applaud the innovative repurposing of one of the countless pieces of plastic necessary for childhood today. Periods. How is a race like an outdoor wedding? In the weeks leading up to both of them, you pray the weather will be good and you won't be having your period. At least that was me before the Eugene Marathon in 2009. It was raining for the first few miles, but at least my uterine lining was firmly in place. I'll take it. One out of two ain't bad. It does suck, though, to have your period during a race. You have to keep track of tampons that fill up faster than the kitchen sink and potentially replace them mid-race, which means you need to somehow stash a new cooter plug on your person and find a bathroom for the switch out. A backup pad gets all twisted and uncomfortable, especially those with wings. For whatever reason, they don't like to fly on running shortliners. Dehydration and the accompanying headaches seem to come on sooner than usual, and the cramps in your belly reverberate with the spasms in your legs, turning you into one massive running cramp. Not pretty. Some women don't rely on prayers or luck. Instead, they use birth control to regulate their cycles. Several moms swear by the Mirena IUD, saying they haven't had their periods in the years since they started wearing one. Marathoner and mother of two Carmen fiddles with birth control so she is period-free during races. You didn't hear this from us. We're not medical professionals qualified to dole out such important advice. But skipping the fake pills in a birth control pack and instead jumping ahead to a new pack makes you skip a period that cycle. Although messing with your hormones might be ill-advised, you may contemplate it after considering the plight of Jennifer, the mother of two boys. Poor gal. At about mile five of her very first race, Aunt Flo paid an unexpected visit. And it was a half marathon. I think I ran faster after that to hurry and finish the race. Yikes! I'm hoping the added incentive netted her a long-standing PR. She at least deserves that. Since we don't let a little thing like menstruation get in the way of our runs, some women have figured out the best line of protection. Here's helpful Coach Christine's advice. I just use a supersized tampon and make sure to put in a new one as close as possible to the start of my race or run. Another thing I like to do is shorten the string, since it always seems to tug and bother me. So after inserting, I tie a knot higher up and cut the string, usually to about half its length. 
I was worried she might make a painful slip with the scissors, but Christine assured me, it's not like my goods hang low. Tamara, up in Seattle, mother of two, offered us some other super valuable, albeit graphic, suggestions. Make sure the tampon is good and stuck up there by running in place a bit before you leave home to make sure it's not sitting crooked or bent. Also, make sure the tampon string is not hanging out of your underwear or shorts liner or caught in the skin fold located between your vagina and your leg. If it is, it could get pulled out step by step during your run. Whatever route you choose to take, try your best to follow the lead of Brandy, a mother of a daughter. My period drags me down a bit, but I know that running is what I need to perk me back up. And that boost is worth a little blood on any shorts liner. Take it from a mother. How do you ace the porta potty line? Just find the line with mostly men. They are much faster than women. Allison runs to feel good, get great legs, and, as her husband says, keep the cuckoo bird in the clock. Take your own toilet paper and go to the porta potty with no TP. Ivana, occasional post run treat, almond milk latte, and chocolate croissant. Arrive late. Everyone has already used the porta potties and they are lined up ready to go. It's one advantage I've found to a late babysitter delaying me on race morning. Mary, goal for every race to maximize what she has. Conditions and my conditioning vary, so I run for effort, not time. Don't assume honey buckets are the only option. If you're at a park, there may be a shorter line at the park bathroom or at a nearby open public building. Or think about it before you get to the race course. My posse stopped into a Hilton after we parked and we're walking to a race. Dimity, you know enough about me already. Always go to the end ones. Believe it or not, no one wants them. Melissa, if I weren't running, I'd be thick. Once you're running, avoid the porta potties between miles one and three. They're packed with runners who couldn't get through the pre race lines. Also, avoid those near the water zones as they're also pretty busy. Junko, hates peeing in the woods. I always feel like a tick is going to latch itself to my bottom. Point two, public safety announcement. Beep, beep, really loud, annoying, beep. We interrupt your regularly scheduled audiobook to bring you the following announcement. Stay safe when you run. Although I feel fairly invincible in my six-foot, almost four-inch frame, there have been times when I've doubted my safety while running. For example, the north end of Central Park, where the Central Park jogger was raped and attacked in 1989, and a female runner was beaten to death in 1995, can give me the chills, especially when I realized I unknowingly ran near the latter's yet undiscovered body. During a run on a semi-deserted road in Santa Fe, I ran over a bridge and saw a man below who was, um servicing himself in broad daylight. As I sped up, I threw up in my mouth. On a run in Colorado Springs, I, hugging the curb, was nearly hit by a car and then yelled at by the driver for assuming we could share the road. If you accumulate enough miles under your shoes, stuff like that happens. Still, here are some ways to keep your runs as peaceful as possible. Keep your jewelry to a minimum. Carry or wear some kind of ID. That's too high maintenance. Write your name and home phone number on the tongue of your shoe. When you're running at dusk or dawn, make sure to have points of reflectivity on your clothes and shoes. No ugly traffic cop vest necessary. Reflective armbands or tape that sticks to your clothes are as effective. At intersections, make eye contact with drivers before you cross to make sure they see you. 
At times, when I've run close to a car rolling through a stop sign, I've flung my arms out wide and yelled, Do you see me? It also helps to make eye contact with drivers of cars in motion who are headed towards you sharing the lane. Doing so humanizes you, encouraging them to give you space. Run with a pal, especially in deserted or new areas. You listen to music, keep the volume low enough so you can hear what's going on around you. Better yet, keep it low and use only one earbud. Run tall and purposefully. Make eye contact with fellow runners and project a don't-mess-with-me-tude. To an attacker, slumped shoulders, a shuffling step, and a downward gaze look exactly like an injured gazelle does to a lion. Easy prey. Trust your intuition. If somebody shady approaches you asking for directions, don't stop. In this case, rudeness is called for. If you're lucky enough to be traveling alone, ask at the hotel front desk for a safe, well-populated route. Write down the route and the address of the hotel if you're prone to getting lost. Then tell the valet or doorman when you expect to return. This concludes the announcement. Thank you for your attention. A few more really loud, really annoying beeps. I mean, we got to go back just just remind people. I mean, I realize now, like everybody, you know, social media has made it a little bit, you know, like you know, pretty much anything goes, right? But I mean, uh-huh. to have the potty talk chapter back in the day, like uh-huh. that was, you know, I mean, that was edgy, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe oh, I'm like, edgy. I like it. giving I like us it. too much credit, but I mean, I'm like, I'm not edgy anymore. So I'm going to, you know. Take, <laughs> ride your take, edgy glory. <laughs> ride my potty talk edgy glory. Well, and the uh-huh. one thing that I remember too, I just have to throw this out there because um, it was before like calorie counts were up on all the menus, right? Mm. And, mm-hmm. um, and, I, for some reason, I, I, I eat very healthily and I eat a lot, but, mm-hmm. um, like malt always make me, I'm like, oh my God, that is 1200 calories. I cannot order a drink that has 1200 calories. Like a, yeah, a like shake. a malt or milkshake. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. an ice cream shake. And I remember getting to the airport and being like chocolate milkshake. That is all I, I, I posted on Facebook about it. I remember that because I was like, oh my God, my throat is in fuego. It's not, I'm like going to be hoarse for days. Um, so that chocolate milkshake has a, has a special place in my memory. Oh my gosh. And also the potty talk um, chapter has a special place in my memory because when you and I laid out the um, the table layout contents. or table of contents. Thank you for the book and say, oh, okay, well, this one's going to be about clothing and this one will be about marriage and this one's about children and you know, uh, mental toughness and nutrition and all that stuff. And oops, we got miscounted. <laughs> we had to have 26 chapters for the marathon. So we had, we had to have 26 chapters and we're like, we only have 25. And we're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what can we write about? What can we write about? And I'm like, well, if you want, you know, it seems like the TMI stuff is goes over kind of big with our audience. How about we do one about, you know, peeing, pooping, passing gas, periods, the whole the whole nine yards. And we're like, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. like I don't remember idea. that. That's a good memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that was a last minute addition. Um, so anyway, so to hear, we, I hope we've whetted your appetite for our audio book. Um, there's 26 chapters, as Dimity said. And, the, and there's 26.2s plus numerous sidebars with all those anecdotes pulled from real women that gave Dim such joy to um, find those nuggets. So to hear them all, search for Run Like a Mother wherever you get audiobooks. And, uh, thank you very much for your support and many happy miles. Many happy miles. <laughs>